Chapter 22, Part 2, The Failed Transition Of the U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable Chapter 22, Part 2, The Failed Transition The Temporary Pulse of Operation Sinbad Far from the sectarian politics and death squads of Baghdad, MNDSE's Operation Sinbad finally commenced on October 28th, when two companies from the 1st Battalion Staffordshire Regiment pulsed into northern Basra's Muftia University District near the Iraqi Naval Academy. Far from being either ready or willing to participate, the 10th Iraqi Army Division provided a meager two dozen soldiers. The Staffords and the 1st Royal Green Jackets would lead later pulses with assistance from the Danish battle group in a few of the city's northern districts. Over a period of three days, coalition troops cordoned off areas, established vehicle checkpoints, and conducted patrols. They emphasized assessing and strengthening district police stations, expecting that policemen would begin to assert their authority on Basra's streets. As planned, each limited geographical pulse was followed by a pause of up to a month in order to conduct police training and to initiate quick-impact projects like painting public buildings, constructing soccer fields, refurbishing schools, and restocking medical centers. As the coalition spent development money on one district, citizens in other neighborhoods clamored for similar job opportunities and community improvements. Quote, it underlined the importance of money as a weapon system in complex stabilization operations, end quote, one commander recalled, lamenting the dearth of UK-provided funds typically available to MNDSE leaders at the tactical level. Still, Shiraf had to remind Maliki in November that Operation Sinbad was not simply about reconstruction. It had a security component as well, and the British commander hoped to extend its impact by pushing into Basra's city center during the operation's next phase. While raids had killed or captured a number of militants, JAM and other militias continued to contest Operation Sinbad's modest and temporary incursions. Sniper fire met British troops at each pulse, and indirect fire attacks on coalition outposts intensified over time. Casey, on an early November trip to Basra, was struck by how the problem of indirect fire consumed MNDSE commanders and their staffs, not to mention the U.S. and U.K. civilian-run offices co-located with the headquarters. Indeed, frequent rocket and mortar attacks effectively drove the British-led provincial reconstruction team out of Basra Palace in the fall, forcing the team's relocation to Kuwait until facilities could be prepared for it at MNDSE's main base outside the city. Casey saw the threat of indirect fire as a strategically significant issue, distinct from Sinbad's almost trivial focus on improving, quote, atmospherics, end quote, in certain neighborhoods. Alarmed, the MNFI commander asked Corelli to consider directing Sheriff to discontinue the operation and turn MNDSE's full attention to stopping indirect fire attacks. JAM, Casey perceived, was attempting to force a UK withdrawal through a rain of rockets and mortars, and he wanted to avoid another embarrassing coalition pullout along the lines of Camp Abu Naji. Indirect fire attacks across MNDSE continued to rise in December, topping more than 25 per week during the final two weeks. 
In Casey's view, the British had allowed the situation in the South to get out of control and had failed to adapt their overarching approach once political and military considerations made it untenable. Abizade had similar thoughts on Basra's turn for the worse, but, given the crisis in Baghdad in late 2006, he had little to recommend when it came to improving MNDSE's prospects. During an October visit, the CENTCOM commander flew into Basra and saw Shirif. He left, feeling uneasy. Quote, Basra is a concern, end quote, he wrote Casey, adding that the situation in Iraq's largest southern city was, quote, probably not as good as Richard thinks, end quote. Operation Sinbad culminated on the night of December 25th with the destruction of the Jamiat police station, the headquarters of Basra's notorious Serious Crimes Unit and the site where British troops had fought militia-allied local police the previous year. Thoroughly infiltrated by militia members, the station had become a den of systemic corruption and torture. Three days earlier, the British had arrested seven members of the Serious Crimes Unit for running a death squad. On the night of the raid, Royal Engineers breached the Jamiat station walls, allowing Staffordshire Regiment troops in infantry fighting vehicles to penetrate the compound. As they cleared the buildings, soldiers found 127 prisoners showing obvious signs of torture and took them into protective custody. The Royal Engineers used explosives to demolish the station. Operation Sinbad made local and temporary security gains but failed to achieve its main objective of reversing the deteriorating situation in Basra over the long term. In the end, militia influence and intimidation of the populace continued, attacks against the coalition in MNDSE rose, and Iraqi forces remained incapable and unwilling to assume responsibility for security even as the British prepared to transfer additional bases in 2007. Sheriff's plan depended on a host of resources, requiring troops and reconstruction money not only to clear an area, but also to hold and build. Civilian and military leaders in London had declined to resource MNDSE adequately, allowing the constraints of politics and army force structure to exert greater influence on troop levels than the logical requirements of a daunting ground campaign. While Sheriff's efforts to employ a comprehensive approach by integrating civilian agencies were well-intentioned, the improved communications it generated mattered little if poor security confined British aid workers to coalition operating bases and prevented their engagement with Iraqis. Similarly, the Maliki administration's failure to support Sheriff's plans politically and militarily contributed to Operation Sinbad's shortfalls. The Prime Minister's hesitancy to confront Shia militias watered down the decisive operation the British commander had envisioned, making it a shadow of its original design. Militia infiltration, a lack of training, and low personnel strength ensured that the Iraqi security forces could not enforce the rule of law on their own. As a result, the British could cobble together enough troops to clear an area, but when the pulse and pause concluded and coalition forces moved on, JAM and other militias would dominate Basra's districts once again. Backing down, the Army Canal checkpoints and Specialist Ahmed Al-Tayi. The vastly differing views between the coalition and the Iraqi government about how to address Baghdad's Shia militants and their destabilizing activities came to a head at the end of October with the kidnapping of an American soldier. 
On October 23rd, Shia militants seized U.S. Army Specialist Ahmed Altai, an Iraqi-born American, during the soldier's unauthorized absence from a coalition base to call on his family in the Karada neighborhood of Baghdad. Kidnapped by local JAM members who had previously observed him visiting his Iraqi wife, within hours Altai was handed over to Qais al-Ghazali's Asaib al-Al-Haq militia, the most powerful of the Iranian-sponsored special groups. Suspecting the missing soldier was being held in Sadr City, Thurman and MNDB ramped up coalition presence at the Iraqi-manned Army Canal checkpoints on Sadr City's western edge to 24 hours per day. With American troops monitoring their operations, Iraqi National Police units searched every vehicle crossing the bridges over the canal. The measure not only disrupted JAM's freedom of movement, it also accompanied a surge of coalition activity in and around the safe haven that knocked the militia back on its heels. Soldiers from the 4th Brigade 101st Airborne Division conducted a U.S.-only cordon and search operation targeting a Sadr City mosque and did so unchallenged during daylight hours. Maliki immediately objected to the checkpoints ostensibly because they caused traffic jams and stifled commerce in East Baghdad. In reality, the prime minister was under pressure from the Sadrists to persuade MNFI to relax its presence at the checkpoints. Maliki believed that Moqtada Sadr would call for a nationwide strike if the Iraqi government allowed the checkpoints to continue. Given his careful efforts to court the Sadrists politically, the prime minister took this threat seriously believing that such a confrontation could trigger the fall of his government. After days of chiding from Maliki, Casey directed MNCI and MNDB on the morning of October 30th to scale back the rigor of the checkpoints, adopting random vehicle checks and thus preventing long queues from forming in and around Sadr City. Some U.S. reports, however, indicated that Tai was still alive and detained in Sadr City, and that the combined checkpoints along the Army Canal were keeping his captors from moving him to a more remote location. In an appeal to Casey a few hours later, Corelli called the evidence supporting this assessment, quote, overwhelming, end quote. Echoing the sentiments of Thurman and MNDB, Corelli urged Casey to reconsider his directive and reinstate 100% checks. Aside from the obvious advantage of bolstering the chances of Tai's recovery, Corelli saw longer-term value in maintaining the Army Canal checkpoints. In the few days the checkpoints had been fully in place, his commanders had seen clear signs that they were disrupting JAM's campaign of sectarian cleansing in mixed areas of the city. They were, quote, absolutely essential, end quote, in cutting down death squad activity, Corelli concluded. The next day, October 31st, Casey went to see Maliki. Visibly exhausted, the Prime Minister greeted the General with a half-joking query, quote, Why are you always giving me trouble? End quote. He wanted to know how MNFI could justify the punishment of three million Sadr City residents over the loss of a single soldier. Tai's Iraqi origin and relation to his uncle Entifad Kanbar, a Sunni politician and an ally of Ahmad Chalabi, seemed in Maliki's eyes to undermine the coalition's claim on the missing American. Quote, This guy is one of us, not one of you, end quote, Maliki added incredulously. Casey challenged the Prime Minister's rationale for lifting the checkpoints. Shia complaints about excessive traffic congestion in East Baghdad were exaggerated, he said. 
The general had flown over the city recently and had seen for himself. Maliki admitted as much, but reiterated his need to act in order to minimize the incident's political liability. Leveling with the Prime Minister, Casey presented the disadvantages associated with lifting the checkpoints. First, he said, relaxing the search criteria at the canal bridges might jeopardize the effort to find Tai and reflect poorly on Maliki in the court of U.S. public opinion. The Prime Minister slyly retorted that, in an unrelated conversation with Bush, the American chief executive had told him not to fret about what Americans thought about the war in Iraq. Secondly, Casey continued, Maliki would be seen as, quote, caving to the solderists, end quote, an especially damaging charge should death squad activity increase as the general guessed it would. Finally, the prime minister would be perceived as, quote, caring more about Shia than Sunni Iraqis, end quote, the MNFI commander warned. But the decision rested with Maliki, Casey concluded. Unsurprisingly, within hours, Maliki announced his order lifting, quote, all barriers and checkpoints and opening all crossing points into Sadr City, end quote. A government press release described the measure as one that would facilitate traffic movement in Baghdad. Future traffic controls, it declared, would take place only at night during curfew hours or in the case of emergencies. Corelli had long doubted the Iraqi government's even-handedness in the increasingly bloody sectarian struggle. Even so, the confrontation over the checkpoints left him, quote, stunned, end quote, and, quote, angered, end quote, he told historians later. Sunni Vice President Tariq Hashimi viewed the matter with similar gravity. He heard about the result of Casey's meeting with Maliki almost instantly and phoned the general, leaving a foreboding message the checkpoint decision would be catastrophic for the Sunnis of Baghdad. It laid bare the meager extent of the coalition's remaining influence over Maliki. The incident also spelled the end of specialist Tai. With the checkpoints effectively lifted, MNFI lost track of him and his captors. A 10-second proof-of-life video was posted on a Shia militant website three months later in February 2007, but otherwise, the United States would see no physical sign of him until Ghazali and Asaib al-Al-Haq returned Tai's remains in February 2012, a few weeks after American troops left Iraq. Diverging End States The dispute over the checkpoints was emblematic of the frequent clashes between Corelli and Casey, Corelli appreciated the fact that the MNFI commander endured tremendous political pressure, but he could not help but think that the force and corps headquarters were both, quote, disconnected from reality, end quote. To continue to wage a counterinsurgency hampered by so formidable an obstacle as the host nation government and its prime minister seemed futile to the MNCI commander. Corelli later bristled at charges that he had fought a 9-to-5 war with forces that commuted to their areas of operations each day. Rather than attempt to defend this as the preferred way to conduct operations to secure the population, the general cited the guidance he had received from higher headquarters. Throughout 2006, MNCI's orders had been to close forward operating bases at a steady pace as part of a campaign to transition responsibility to the Iraqis. A core order published in April had called for a reduction in coalition bases from 110 to 54 by the end of 2006. 
With just weeks remaining in Corelli's tour, the modified goal looking ahead to 2007 was 30 bases. Quote, There was no point where I was told to stop shutting down and, quote, forward operating bases, he recalled. Corelli later described MNFI's plan as one that, after February or March 2006, quote, should never have been executed, end quote. He had voiced his concerns, but Casey had dismissed or downplayed many of them, Corelli believed. According to Corelli, the inability to influence the Iraqi ministries plagued the coalition throughout 2006. The Corps commander had begun his tour intent on, quote, winning the peace, end quote, through largely, quote, non-kinetic, end quote, means, such as the delivery of basic services and providing economic opportunity for civilians. However, a woefully dysfunctional government was infertile ground for an approach that depended so much on the development of civil capacity. By the end of the year, the disorder plaguing the central government reached its peak. Still embroiled in a crippling and destructive, quote, war of the ministries, end quote, the arms of the executive branch effectively fought as proxies in a struggle for power. The government was collectively held hostage by the cycle of sectarian violence, while various subcomponents worked against each other to exacerbate the cycle. Ever since the first months of Maliki's administration, Corelli believed he had detected the ruthless implementation of a sectarian agenda in various ministries. By fall 2006, his frustration had reached the point of suspecting that the government of Iraq defined progress in starkly different terms than the coalition striving to support it. MNDB saw the same problem and considered it a matter of two parties sharing a common end state but pursuing it by different means. The coalition and the Iraqi government both desired stability in Baghdad that would lay a foundation for future political and economic development, Thurman's command judged, but while the coalition sought this goal by eliminating death squads and accelerants of sectarian violence, the government seemed set on doing it by consolidating Shia power and running the Sunnis out of town. In his final weeks in Iraq in November and December 2006, Corelli jettisoned MNDB's attempt at nuance and declared that the coalition and the government of Iraq were pursuing completely different and increasingly diverging end states. The coalition adhered to a balanced approach, protecting both Sunni and Shia neighborhoods while transitioning security responsibility to what it hoped would be non-sectarian Iraqi security forces. To Corelli, it had become clear that Maliki aimed to limit coalition freedom of action while JAM and other Shia militias expanded their control in and around Baghdad. The government, he inferred, was not serious about reconciliation, an essential milestone for moving forward. On the contrary, it obstructed the process by tolerating or encouraging the spread of sectarian influence in the army and police. The two end states, in Corelli's mind, included different sets of, quote, winners, end quote, and, quote, losers, end quote. In the coalition's end state, Sunni, Shia, and Kurdish citizens would be regarded equally, while al-Qaeda and Shia militias lost out. In the other, the Sunnis collectively fell into the losers' column, and Shia militias emerged as victorious. Quote, while various players in the GOI have different visions for Iraq's future, he concluded, dominant players, Shia and Kurds, are rapidly moving towards an end state that differs substantially from the end state envisioned and pursued by the coalition. End quote. 
Frustrated with Corelli's focus on the political and economic aspects of the conflict, Casey thought his subordinate was too distracted. As the, quote, guys with the guns, end quote, the Corps needed to concentrate first and foremost on employing its military power as effectively as possible and to worry less about what the Iraqi government did or did not do, the MNFI commander admonished his subordinate. Nonetheless, Casey himself wondered whether a, quote, Shia hand, end quote, was manipulating Maliki and pressuring the prime minister to rein in the coalition. From the MNFI commander's vantage point, Maliki did very little to stop the growth of JAM's power, particularly since that growth benefited him politically. He would need to be persuaded to modify his approach. Casey agreed with Rumsfeld advisor Stephen Cambone, who suggested that the Iraqis were still, quote, struggling to find their own end state, end quote. But this was too charitable. MNFI's efforts in late 2006 to change the dynamic in Baghdad were hamstrung by Iraqi sectarian bias. If reducing violence in the capital required a serious Iraqi commitment, as Casey believed, then Maliki and his allies inside and outside the government undoubtedly were committed. They were just pursuing an agenda much at variance with the coalition's aims. Something had to change. End of Chapter 22, Part 2, The Failed Transition Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021